0: Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this
1: program, Nancy Goodman Torpey and Peter Torpey. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. Several years ago, we talked with a blind architect about how his designs incorporate considerations for people who are visually impaired. He's recently been featured a lot in the news on 60 Minutes and other venues, and we thought we'd play that show again because we have a lot more detail here that you haven't heard before and also he's finished a number of the projects that we talked about in this episode.
0: Chris Downey was a practicing architect for 20 years when he suddenly lost all of his vision but undaunted continued working as an architect but he was then able to incorporate his new understanding about how people with vision loss experience spaces and you'll get to hear In some detail about what he's learned is important in designing blind friendly spaces and also how he is able to do his work. But first for our tip of the week. Well, most of this show is going to be about designing the building so that it's more friendly to a blind person. Well, if there's a blind person living or working inside this building, here's a tip to keep your space more pleasant. Give everything a place and make sure it stays there.
1: And this reminds me about the old Helen Keller joke that goes something like, how did they punish Helen Keller when she was a child? Well, her parents moved the furniture around. Don't let that happen to you. As Nancy says, it's best if everything is kept in its place and you keep a relatively uncluttered house and that the visually impaired person knows where everything is all the time. (laughs)
0: Let's start by meeting Chris Downey and learning a bit about the difference between being a sighted architect and a blind architect.
2: Hello, my name is Chris Downey. I'm an architect practicing in the San Francisco Bay Area. I teach a class on ADA and universal design for the Department of Architecture at UC Berkeley and do some other things. I'm on the California Commission on Disability Access.
0: Many of our listeners and guests have visual impairments. Do you?
2: Yes, I do. I have no sight at all.
0: And what was that due to?
2: I unexpectedly lost all sight from complications from surgery to remove a brain tumor. that was back in spring of uh, 2008.
1: And you were well into your profession by that time. So you had all your training out of the way, I take it.
2: Yes. Yeah, I was 45 at the time and had been practicing as an architect for 20 years, had two degrees in architecture. So I was well on my way.
0: So this put you in a position of being an architect who all of a sudden had experience navigating as a blind person. How did you capitalize on that pair of special skills?
2: It was interesting. I immediately went back to work within a month of the surgery, doing what I could. And then my orientation mobility training kicked in. And I found myself Sort of uh, relearning the environment with everything but my eyes, and as architects, we're students of the environment we live in and environment we pass through. We constantly study it, figure out what makes things work, why, and things like that. And my bias on that had always been visual, as would be most architects and what became interesting to me it was I started experiencing spaces that I knew visually, but was experiencing them through other senses, other sensory information. And I was relating that phenomena to the space that I knew visually and started to realize how these things all work together. The space, the sound, the tactile experience. I also lost all sense of smell, so I didn't have that to work with and all that. It was really fascinating because I was relearning these environments just through all these different sensory modalities. And that kind of led to the idea of how, as architects, we sort of forget all that stuff and we don't focus on it. And it was an opportunity to make it a strength in the work that I do as an architect. When you deal with architecture, it's about being in time and space with your full mind and body, having a full experience. And so it wasn't just an opportunity to make environments richer for people that are blind and visually impaired. I think it's Really, about making environments richer and more enjoyable for everybody.
1: So, I had a limited amount of sight as a child, and my vision slowly deteriorated until, you know, I don't see anything these days, but I've sort of had the experience of being a blind person and being attuned to these other senses because my sight was never all that good. And I'm just kind of curious, this sounded like a very abrupt transition for you. What was it like to sort of learn to pay attention to these other senses? Was that a difficult transition?
2: It was difficult, but it was pretty quick and I was pretty aggressive with my training and. I was pretty excited about it. I really took it as an adventure and as this great new design challenge to figure something out. So it was met, sure, you know, uh, getting around at first is a little bit, you know, a bit of a scary proposition, but it's also coupled with this excitement and adventure of sort of learning new things and experiencing the world that I thought I knew really well, experiencing it in in new and different ways. So to me, it, it feels like it's still evolving. It's definitely a very exciting thing to go through.
1: It's interesting. I'm always amazed how much of this additional sensory input that sighted people tend to ignore because they do sense most of the world visually.
2: Yeah. And it's all there for all of us to use. But with the sight, it's so tempting to think, oh, that's enough.
0: You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Success 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 This week's focus topic is Chris's work creating spaces that are easier and or more pleasant for a visually impaired person to experience. We continued the conversation from the previous segment by discussing how a blind person might perceive a space. People are forever being amazed. Pete will walk into a room and he can tell you probably with more accuracy than most sighted people how big that room is.
2: Yeah, you know, sometimes I can pick that up. I feel like I'm still coming to terms with some of that spatial perception of the overall space. In general, I have a good sense of it. and I always listen for it. I'll typically tap my cane on the ground. You know, I'm a bit unusual as an architect. I would study things in a very obsessive way with my eyes. And now I observe it with my ears and through touch. And so I'll walk into a space and I'll, you know, tap my cane, snap my fingers, clap my hands. I'll do whatever it takes for me to try to hear the magnitude of the space around me. And sometimes it works. And sometimes I've been surprised at how little input I get back. I have to start wondering about the acoustic treatments and what's going on. If I, especially if I know it's a big space and it's not sounding like it.
0: You recently completed work on the San Francisco Independent Living Resource Center. Can you tell us about that project?
2: The San Francisco Independent Living Resource Center, it's an organization that offers advocacy, training, technology, uh, rehabilitation services, uh, housing assistance, uh, all sorts of assistance for people with any disability, physical, mobility, sensory, cognitive deal with it all. The connection to the blind is that the executive director, a uh, woman by the name of Jesse Lorenz, is blind as well. So an exciting part of that project was not only designing for people with disabilities for this center, but it was also about making the design process accessible to someone who was blind, the key stakeholder, the executive director of the organization.
0: And how did you manage to do that?
2: Well, a lot of it has to do with the natural way I work. I have a large format embossing printer so that I can get a tactile print of the architectural drawings that are underway. And it's very quick, very easy. They just create PDFs and I can print it through my embossing printer and read it through touch. And so those drawings are drawings that I can share with the client who's blind And then I've also developed techniques for drawing on top of those in accessible form. I use wax sticks or wiki sticks to draw on top of the embossed drawings so that I can explore ideas, work on details, make a visual idea or presentation graphic for myself, and then in this case for Jesse as well. So those two things, the embossing printer and the wax sticks were really the key tools for me to work with. Not only to communicate with her, but to communicate with others on the team, the architect that I teamed with to do the production work, uh, but also dealing with the contractors and engineers and making every, you know, just doing everything that you do as an architect, sort of making all that accessible.
0: So as I understand it, that's not very different from how most senior architects work, that the senior architect will come up with the concept and maybe make a sketch, and then a junior person will do the detailed drawings.
2: Absolutely. And that was the key thing and something that enabled me to continue because I had been working that way for years. So I had been working sort of as an artistic director, as a personnel manager, project manager, I've had my own firm, Uh, I've directed architectural offices, and so I was very used to working that way. And so when I lost my sight, I didn't feel like, oh, well, I can't draw on the computer anymore. To me, it was more about, well, how do I communicate with my staff? Yeah, you know, it was certainly nice to be able to hop on the computer and sit down and draw stuff and do that as I used to do. But it wasn't essential, and quite frankly, there's a lot of time where I just shouldn't be doing that. I should be communicating with others to
1: do it. Are there any other special accommodations that you make use of in performing your job?
2: Not really. Those are really the key things. There's there are times when obviously, if I'm going to need to observe what's going on on an existing building or on something that's under construction. You know, if I can get my hands on it, I can explore it just as well, if not better than I used to before. So it takes a little bit more time sometimes to explore a construction site or an existing building without site. And there'll be things that I might miss on my own if I'm exploring it all through touch and I'll need to rely on someone to point out things that are critical or things that I can't get my hands to to sort of describe those issues so that we can deal with them. It was an interesting thing on this Independent Living Resource Center in San Francisco dealing with what we call the reflected ceiling plan. It's like the floor plan, only it's a plan of what's happening in the ceiling with different ceiling treatments, heights, lights, all sorts of different things that are happening up there. So not only did I need to explain what that drawing was to someone who was blind, the client, uh, Jessie, has, she's been blind since birth. So the whole idea of a ceiling and how one might craft and mold a ceiling in the different materials that are involved, it was all sort of foreign territory.
1: Blind people don't get to see the ceilings very often, yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> just the tall ones. Typically, just slightly out of reach.
1: What other special concepts or features did you put into these buildings because it was going to be used by blind folks?
2: When you were designing buildings and interiors for buildings, we often put together what's called a material palette. And that's showing the colors and finishes of everything that goes in the space, like on the floor, on the walls, on the ceiling. And when I deal with the floor now, I deal with not just what does it look like, But what does it sound like or feel like through the touch of a cane? So I'll get big samples and I'll tap the materials with my cane, rub it, you know, do a drag across the materials. I'll try to get larger samples so I can see how they really perform or do mock-ups so we get some of them put together and really deal with a tactile palette, not just a visual palette. So often an architect or designer might have the same flooring tile throughout in terms of the finish, but have different colors in it that actually could make a lot of sense if they offered a different texture as well. So those things I try to do, and I really try to anticipate how people would move through space, where you would intuitively or logically go. If it's a space that you would need to move down the center of a space, how would you perceive that? Are there things, acoustic cues or things that you can work with to help get you straight across that space? I really try to bring that whole sort of non-visual or visually impaired experience into the design process so that the things that we typically do as an exploratory method or a problem-solving strategy, how can we make those things more intentional within the design process instead of just discovered? I have no sight at all. It's all dark. I know that's a rarity. Most people that are blind have some sight. So I also do a lot of work with Lighting, glare control, window treatments, color contrast in space. You know, there's all these requirements for color contrast on signs. But if it's good for a sign, it's probably good for the architecture as well. So can you use those ideas of contrast to help better form the architecture? So if you have a strong visual impairment, you can improve your the visual accessibility of the space.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so often in this show, we talk about how if something is designed to be easier to use for somebody with a visual impairment, it's also collaterally easier to use for people without visual impairments. And usually we're talking about computer programs and apps and stuff like that. But the same clearly applies to signage and buildings and whatnot.
2: It absolutely does. There's a design philosophy called universal design. And it's something that's often talked about, but not always understood. And some of those principles of universal design talk about perceptibility of information in multiple ways of perceiving information. So typically, architects and designers or industrial designers, anybody creating things, or whether it's technology, will just assume sight without assuming, oh, well, how does sound play into this or how does touch play into it? And anytime you can create a multi-sensory experience that is communicating through multiple sensory modalities, then you improve the clarity and the possibility of communication across any kind of disability, any condition. So there's all sorts of things that sort of change our sense of perception of the space around us, that if we're dealing with sort of multiple Uh, sensory modalities, it really works better for everyone. With it, I think, comes a a greater degree of enjoying the space. It's not just about access. It's just more enjoyment.
0: You talked about visiting construction sites while they were underway working on a project that you had designed. Yes. How do you deal with the safety issue?
2: (laughs) Well, I wouldn't do it alone. Quite frankly, the biggest fear are ladders and things hanging in space because it's all underway and it's not necessarily prepared for a blind architect to come snooping around.
1: And that's something the cane doesn't necessarily catch. <laughs> exactly. Boy, I would think your biggest worry would
0: be the other people just wandering around and assuming that you would get out of their way while they're carrying some two by fours or I-beams or, or who knows what.
2: Yeah, I got to be careful about that. But for the most part, I can I can get around and I do have the benefit of I know these spaces. You know, if I'm designing it, I know it. It's in my head and I know where I am in the space and I can anticipate things. What I can't anticipate would be you know stacks of materials or where a ladder might be for 5 minutes or where there might be cables and wires hanging down out of the ceiling or you know things like that but if it's on the floor I'll find it so I'm never just blasting through them recklessly I'm always very careful
1: You know, shortly after we retired, we got involved in uh, building a Habitat house Mm -hmm. with some of our colleagues. And Nancy made sure that all the people we worked with had known me from work. So they were familiar with, you know, being sensitive to that. And fortunately, I survived and it was quite a bit of fun.
0: (laughs) And the house came out okay too.
1: Great. Yeah. You know, I I must say it it
2: does take some adjustment for the construction crews to get used to a blind architect or just anybody blind being on site. You know, it's not something they typically deal with.
1: So because of your experiences and sensitivities, I would guess some of your design processes and concepts are a little bit different than people might expect. What kind of reaction have you gotten from colleagues and or people you work with and for?
2: It's interesting. I think most architects are pretty excited and sort of inspired by sort of a different look at, you know, how to design and what to design. I've really perceived nothing but support. And a lot of it's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty obvious. We should we should know that. It should be part of what we do. And even there's some things that I'm working on now for developing rendering uh, methodologies for hearing what a space will sound like in digital space. So I'm working with some engineers that have put together a a way to give a digital model of space for them to demonstrate what the sound will be like by going inside a sound lab that they have. And I can hear it in advance before it's built and then can use that as a design tool to better craft and shape the sound of the space. So it's a very new thing. Nothing like that has been done. They're using technology they use for designing music halls it's proprietary it's their own stuff and i'm just pushing it to say you know i want to hear what it's like to move through this space so i have this tapping sound going throughout the building and i define where i'm going to walk and then i'm going to hear it then i can work with it to decide if it's offering the amount of acoustic clarity that's appropriate or if certain things need to be adjusted it's just like doing a visual walk through a space to make a design adjustments this would offer me the chance to hear it and make design adjustments based on how it sounds.
1: Yeah, that's certainly a new way of looking at things. That sounds pretty exciting.
2: Yeah, I sort of had to lose my sight to come up with these ideas and think about things this way. But it's something that's available to all of us and it makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, so it is pretty exciting and I get a lot of support from within the profession for these things that I'm doing.
0: Boy, it's really nice to know that somebody's thinking about all these things and with some experience. I know about maybe 10, 12 years ago, one of these home makeover TV shows made over a house for some man who had recently been blinded, and I forget if it was disease or accident or whatever, And they redid the house as a special treat for this guy. And what was the first thing they did was they moved some of the walls. Right. (laughs) Took away all of his familiar landmarks. And the next thing they did was they put in all these crazy textures. So they had brick on the wall in the hall so he'd know he was in the hall. And Pete was just horrified. He's like, what are you kidding? If I rub my hand across this wall, I'm going to shred my hand. And they had obviously not really gotten the customer requirements right. And this poor guy moved back into his house. It was almost unusable.
1: It sounded horrible. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I've heard of that episode. I I never saw it and I never heard it critiqued that way, but it's exactly what I would have expected. And I get that all the time in terms of, oh, what should we do? Thanks to the internet, I'm pretty searchable. And so I get inquiries from students around the world about, you know, I'm doing a house for the blind or a school for the blind. What should I do? And they have A lot of ideas just like that. And can't answer that in a quick email.
0: (laughs) Right. But the first answer is talk to your customer.
2: My thing is like, if you don't have a client, go find one or contact a blind services organization where you live. Meet some blind people. Adopt one as your client. Talk to them, interview them, treat them like any other client you would have. Find out what works for them. Otherwise, I say, don't worry about all these other guide strip things. Think about it like what would make the space interesting and lively and enjoyable if you couldn't see it.
1: Don't assume that you know the answer based on your assumptions of what the other person wants.
2: Exactly. But even your your comment, Peter, about you know, having brick on the walls, that's something that I, I never thought about as a sighted architect. And quite frankly, I haven't really communicated. I've thought about it. But the issue of when you end up with handrails on a brick or stone wall and you're trying to find the handrail to go down the stair and you end up like shredding your knuckles as you reached out to find the, the handrail and just the realization of, oh, there's a place where you're going to come into contact with a building. And what should that experience be like? Should it be abrasive or should it be sort of generous and anticipate the touch of the human hand?
1: And you would never think about that issue if you could see to grab the handrail. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now for this week's final item, some more projects that Chris is working on, including designing blind-friendly mass transit stations.
1: So what is your next big project?
2: Oh, the next big project at the moment is this uh, new headquarters for the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco, and it's three floors, 40,000 square feet of space, uh, right on Market Street in downtown San Francisco, and I'm consulting with another firm, Mark Kevin, your own associates in San Francisco, for the design of that space. So that's something that I'm really excited about. It's going to be a great new space for them. And doing some work with BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit Authority. So doing some work related to accessibility for some new prototype work they're doing and also doing some work for a local transit agency in the East Bay uh, around Oakland for a bus rapid transit project. They're working on the design of the platform stations for that. Well,
0: that's great because visually impaired people not being able to drive are disproportionately represented among customers for mass transit.
2: Yes, that's been my pitch there are like three transit projects I've been involved with. And it's all through this position that the blind and visually impaired make up a sort of a minority concern of the users of mass transit. But we're absolutely captive users. We don't get to hop out in the car and go on our own. So especially if you're in an urban environment, you rely on mass transit. And especially in a big urban area, where there's infrastructure, there's, you know, bus stations, bus platforms, subway stations, all sorts of things. All those spaces become very critical. One early realization I had was that if you did everything ever imagined by the Americans with Disabilities Act, all the guidelines for design, you wouldn't begin to address the navigational issues that you face getting around a transit center without sight. Basically, it'll account for your safety, but It's like you can't read the Braille signs to get you through a transit center. It's not like a hotel where you could read the progression of numbers down the hallway if you could read Braille uh, or see the signage. There's just not a whole lot of stuff to work with. And if you can't do that, then what are the other opportunities? How could you design for these other non-visual strategies that we use to navigate through a space? You know, how can you be more obvious, more intentional about landmarks and cues, Or even working with acoustics and contrasts and all the stuff that we deal with to make those spaces more manageable for increased navigation.
1: So if people wanted to learn more about you or the work you do, how would they contact you or find out more?
2: Well, I have a website. And that's www.archforblind.com. That's ARCH, short for architecture, A-R-C-H, for the number four, blind. So it's pretty easy, archforblind.com. And there, there's a link to contact me through info at archforblind.com. Um, that's really the easiest way. And there, there's some links to our articles and, and other interviews and things that have happened over time and little bits about the work that I do.
0: And on his website, it gives his telephone number as area code 510-409-8592.
1: And in case you missed that, as usual, you can find all of that contact information in our show notes at www.eyesonsuccess.net.
0: That's it for show number 1908. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about ViewPlus Graphical Braille Embossers. John Gardner was a professor of physics when he had an eye operation that left him totally blind. Although he was able to continue teaching, he could no longer evaluate the data from his experiments. We'll talk with John and his son, Dan Gardner, about how this experience led to the development of the ViewPlus Graphical Braille Embossers. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094.